All right, so our reading this morning is Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. So if you'd like to use the Pew Bible, um, it'll be on page 927. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sisters and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Well, a few years ago, I almost threw my binder on the floor. I, heard, I, I got a nice compliment. Uh, I don't think I was meant to hear this, but it got, I got, it got to me. It got word to me. Um, about my preaching, and, and it was said, well he, well, he doesn't tell many jokes, and so that's really stuck with me, and this is probably a little bit of an impulsive, but here goes. Uh, what, what do a haircut, a preacher, and an old Italian couple have in common? Let's Luke and see. There's a reason I don't tell many jokes. <laughs> Honestly, if you, to say it with a slightly different tone, it's not a joke, really. What, what do a haircut, a preacher, and an old Italian couple have in common? Besides Acts 18, 20, 18 through 28, maybe, maybe nothing. I love, I love passages like this one. You know, most commentaries that, that I read and have looked into uh, use these verses kind of as transition from one one story to the next. Paul's set, end, end of Paul's second missionary journey to the beginning of his third. Interesting that Luke so casually speaks of this transition when this would have been probably about 1,200 miles that Paul journeyed just in these verses as he moved, and then who knows how many uh, weeks or months in between uh, th- this storyline. I found, actually, I found no sermons preached exclusively on these 11 verses. And most of the commentaries, as mentioned, just spoke of uh, cursory comments. So it makes me think there's something here to be mined. What gems can be mined out of passages like this one? This isn't walking along the beach and picking up shells. This is diving for pearls. 
It's that kind of work. And, and I think there's a, a phrase in here that will glue it together. I'll center on the phrase in verse 25. It's used to describe Apollos, but it's also applicable to Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, and we would hope would be applicable for us. Uh, if not by the end of this sermon, then it would be growing to be applicable for us as we grow in Christ. It's this phrase, fervent in spirit. Zeon to pneumati. First, if you look at that Greek phrase, there's an article before spirit, which seems to be dropped in most English translations so that a direct, a direct translation would be fervent in the spirit. And whenever the article, most often when art, the article shows up before spirit in the New Testament, it is referring to uh, the Holy Spirit. The word holy doesn't show up in, this, in, in the Greek here, but I do believe that this means in describing Apollos that he was fervent in the spirit, which still could, could mean his own spirit. But I, I do believe it's the Holy Spirit that Luke was trying to articulate here. Uh, a second note is that this word that's translated fervent is literally boiling. Boiling. So we could say the, the phrase boiling in the Spirit. And I think it makes you pause and look at it a little bit different. What is Luke communicating to us? When many of us, perhaps most of us, are spiritually lukewarm at best, what does it look like to be boiling in the Holy Spirit. And I think these four servant leaders of the early church show us, and there's some insights to be drawn from them as they point us to Jesus. Because truly, if anyone was fervent, boiling in the Holy Spirit, it was Jesus. But these four servants of the Lord are also following in His model. We know Paul, at least fairly well, better than these other three, uh, certainly by now as we've journeyed through Acts. And by his own admission, and certainly evidenced in his life, he was always fervent in spirit. And maybe at first fervent in his own spirit. Zealous. Uh, zealous beyond anyone he knew, he even uh, wrote. Uh, before Jesus saved him, he was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. But really in his own spirit and what is what drove him. When Jesus saved him, he becomes zealous in the Holy Spirit, relentless in His pursuit of the lost and His preaching of the Word. And we've seen that throughout Acts. In his letter to the Roman church, Romans 12, verse 11, he said, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Same phrase that Luke used to describe Apollos. Paul is writing to the church in Rome as a, as a commission, as a command. Be fervent in the Spirit. Boil in the Holy Spirit. The article is present there. Meanwhile, in the passage we're looking at, Paul is getting a haircut. At Centrea, he had his haircut, for he was under a vow. And that's all we're told. So what does that have to do with fervency or boiling in the Spirit? And we do have to make some guesses here because we're not told the rest of the story. But this is, I think, best guess, like, like a Nazarite vow. Uh, Numbers chapter 6 speaks of uh, voluntary vows for a season, for a time, unto the Lord for, for worship. We might think of it like a Lenten season vow. Uh, maybe similar to a fast, but in the case of a Nazarite vow, it was to abstain from alcohol, maybe to abstain from other things or other pleasures. 
uh, as a, for a season, truly voluntary, to worship the Lord, to devote time to Him. And maybe as a reminder, but a part of the Nazarite vow was that you would let your hair grow. It says the hair on the head, which does include the beard for men. So for however long that season went, hair would, you wouldn't cut your hair. And then at the end of that vow, you actually, in, in those days, were required to go to Jerusalem to complete the vow, to offer sacrifices, to have your hair cut, and the hair would even be burned. Uh, not a pleasant smell. I'm guessing something like this was what, what Paul was under, what vow he voluntarily put himself under. He's not cutting his hair, so he has his hair cut at Centrea. The vow is over. So again, these are best guesses, but I, I believe uh, we could infer that Paul made this vow while in Corinth. And I believe as a response to God's faithfulness to him. Remember in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus showed up in a vision to him and said, I will care for you. I'll provide for you. Do not, do not be afraid. Continue to speak. In this city, you have my protection. No one will harm you. Yeah, you'll face opposition, but no one will harm you. It kind of gave him this peace license to continue to preach in Corinth. And so Paul remained 18 months. But that seems like a good amount of time for hair and beard to grow, so he was in need of a haircut and a shave. And that's, my, that's my best guess, and I think there's some corroboration that we could look at there. Regardless of exactly how long or what or what he was vowing, he, was com- he completed the vow when he left Corinth, and so he had his hair cut and worshipped the Lord by giving thanks for his provision this is in no way legalism. Paul would never have put himself back under the law as if this could earn God's favor. Uh, this was, wasn't a bartering thing between him, him and God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. That's never the way we would treat these kinds of vows. And really, so, as so much of our faith and our walk with Jesus is, is about the heart, you could enter into a fast or a vow or a Lenten season in a truly religious way, in a truly... God, if you're good, you'll see my actions and then therefore you'll respond like this. Or you could enter into that very same action with a truly right heart, humble heart that says, Lord, just I need reminders. You're so worthy of everything and so for this season I'm setting this aside that I'll be reminded. That's what a fast ultimately is intended to do to remind us of our hunger and thirst for Jesus. A fast of uh, maybe earthly comforts for a season can remind us of how much comforts and blessings he's given. So again, it is determined on the heart whether or not this is true worship. And I think we see this as an example of fervency in spirit. That Paul himself is fervent. He's boiling in his response to worship. He's quick to worship. He's quick to respond to God's faithfulness. He wants to show him and others exactly who he serves and God's faithfulness. He's looking for opportunities to speak that. And maybe if others noticed his disheveledness, they'd ask him, why, why do you look like this? And he could speak of God's faithfulness. I'm sure the only way he got away with this is Paul wasn't married. Uh, a, few, a few years ago, for, I tried Mo- Movember. I know I see some of you faithfully going for it. Uh, for some of you, that's not new at all. Uh, but as I thought, I just, you know, like a Nazarite vow, um, minus giving up the alcohol, because this wasn't a vow, it was an experiment. I would just let, let, the, let the hair grow and... After like a week, man, neck hair is, neck beard is just awful. So I bailed on that, and then by, by December 1st, I had everything shaved off. I just couldn't handle it. So good for you, uh, who, who keep the flavor savers, but not, not this guy. 
my wife had something to do with it, yeah. I believe Paul is just expressing a fervency in his spirit. And I think it's a good reminder to us that we too should be more fervent in spirit. We should be more quick to express worship and gratitude for God's provision. Looking for new or creative ways to do so. Be willing to speak that out to others. Obviously in a fast, I mean, we're told, Jesus tells us, don't announce it like the Pharisees do as, because Again, it was a matter of the heart that you would be seen and noticed and of, oh, they're fasting and honored spiritually. That's not the point. That certainly wasn't what Paul was doing here. Looking for why would you wear a cross around your neck? For some of you that have tattoos of significant spiritual events in your your life, an opportunity to speak, to proclaim, if asked. Hopefully life also models that. Our hope, our joy, as we're told. Let, Let others see your hope that they might ask and notice and that you might point them to Jesus, a paraphrase of Peter's words. And so being quick to look for ways to give testimony, quick for opportunities. And again, a reminder to you, next Sunday, you have that opportunity to look for and proclaim testimonies of thanksgiving that others could be encouraged and that God could be honored. So be ready to do that. Well, we know much about Paul And this is just a snapshot that we don't know the full details of, but I think we can make some good assumptions of his fervency and the Spirit continuing. What about these other three? Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Start with them. This married couple uh, from Italy. Uh, They had been displaced from their home in Rome. Kind of historical records show that the Emperor Claudius had all of the Jews removed uh, sometime maybe in the 40s AD, that there was already kind of a stirring amongst the Jews. And like we see in so many of the other cities, it makes sense if the gospel of Jesus has reached Rome, which it did before Paul ever got there, then there was an uproar amongst the Jews. And we often know that controversy that took place and the Jews would often try to get the the, the Roman rule to come in and to end it or to do something about it. And it's likely the same thing happened in Rome and Emperor Claudius said, no, I'm not dealing with this. All of you Jews, get out. And he just sent them straight out of the city. So whether they were Jewish Christians or not, it didn't matter. It seems to be what happened to this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They've been sent out as Jewish, uh, probably believers, Jewish uh, followers of God that became believers in Jesus. And they find themselves in Corinth. And in Corinth is where Paul met them. And they opened up their home to him and their business to him. And they worked alongside each other for all of those months. They lived together, became very close so close that Paul then invited them to come with him as he was ending his time in Corinth. Would you come with me, journey with me? I'm going back to Antioch and then I'm planning on continuing on as the Lord leads. At some point, they, were, they came to Ephesus and he trusted them to stay in Ephesus and to really continue in ministry. And if you know anything about Paul's, Paul's call and his story, this, that would have been such an incredible honor. Paul liked to be the first one to proclaim the gospel in a new city. He didn't want to build on someone else's false foundation. So to, to, lead, to leave this couple in a city that he hasn't yet ministered in, he's going to come back to Ephesus and remain for three years, but for that short time, a great trust, a great honor in these two teachers of the Word. They knew the Word and they worked with Him and uh, we see, them, we see their, their zealousy. They were fervent, boiling in the Holy Spirit. It's evident by their generosity their hospitality, their flexibility. They're willing to move from city to city for the sake of the gospel. 
They take in this young preacher who we are now meeting, Apollos, and they instruct him more fully in the gospel, but like, you know, likely the, the ministry and life of Jesus. There were gaps there. And he had only known the, the baptism of John. Remember, the gospel accounts are still, either still being written or still being distributed at this time. So as, you know, think of the, the game telephone a little bit, as, as the gospel is spreading and scattering out of Jerusalem, who knows who the messenger ultimately is and where it's coming from and bits and pieces are being put together. And Apollos seems to come to the Lord and believe and be sincere and genuine, but there's some missing pieces of the story and the commissions of Jesus. There was more to learn. There was more to grow in. It's a good reminder for us that we're not, we're not, we don't need to learn everything before we start ministering, before we start preaching and proclaiming. He was competent in the Scriptures. He was teaching accurately the things of Jesus, which would be the gospel unto salvation, but there were still things that were missing, not complete in the full story and life of Jesus that he needed to learn and that Priscilla and Aquila knew, and so they took him aside and they instructed him. Again, they are faithful in ministry as well as fervent in the Spirit. Now, I'm sure that Aquila was also sound in the Scripture and was able to teach, but it's interesting here that Luke switches the order. We met them earlier in this chapter, and he kind of uses the formal Aquila, Priscilla. Even in our culture, that's still, I think, fairly common. The man is listed first in the couple. Some would reject that notion altogether, uh, but here is the same thing in this culture. And in fact, we might gloss over, over this now. and Oh, it just switches the order, Priscilla and Aquila. But it's very significant when, he speak, when Luke is speaking toward their ministry, and their ministry here is in teaching the Bible. And Luke switches the order and actually lists Priscilla first. Paul will do the same thing. When Paul writes of this couple... He writes more often than not Priscilla and Aquila. He uses the term Prisca. Or it's the more formal name of Priscilla. Priscilla was probably like a nickname. As an example, Romans 16, verse 3, when he's writing to the church, and he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So they've made their way back to Rome, and he misses them, and he says, As you receive this letter, greet them. My dear friends, they've spent, up at this point, when he wrote Romans, they had spent years of ministry together. And so he missed them. But he, he lists Prisca, Priscilla, and first, then followed by Aquila, and calls them fellow workers, my co-laborers in the Lord. So in speaking of ministry, Priscilla listed first. I think it's just worth noting that even though Acts does center around prominent men in, in ministry, it certainly does not hide the role of prominent women in ministry. And we see that right from the beginning in Acts 2. And at, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all who were there, and the men and women minister and prophesy in fulfillment to Joel's prophecy. And here we see the same. And Paul would write to the Galatian church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit may distribute gifts differently that's up to him but it certainly is not along gender or status or ethnic lines there's no division or discrimination there 
And I would say that I guess many of you husbands could probably profess, like Aquila could of Priscilla, oh, my wife is far more gifted in this area than I am. We let her lead. And yet serving together is a powerful model and example for us. This couple who we don't know all that much about, but we can see their fervency in spirit. And now we meet Apollos, the one who this phrase is first used for uh, by Luke. He's a fervent man. And he would become a close friend and a trusted ally of Paul, co-laboring also in the ministry and preaching. What we know of him or can glean from him in this passage and some of the other other times he's spoken of in the New Testament, he was likely uh, a young-ish man, maybe in his 30s. He's a powerful evangelist and preacher. Uh, we know he's Egyptian. and That might come as a surprise for some. He's from Alexandria, so northern Africa. So get that picture in your mind of Apollo. So maybe you've read through scriptures a number of times and read this name and um, put your own bias on who he was. He was an Egyptian man, highly educated as Alexandria was known for uh, its schools and philosophies and study, a very uh, renowned, renowned city. Um, he's competent in the scriptures and he's a follower of Jesus. He's a dynamic communicator. Luke says he's eloquent. People would listen and he could draw, he could draw a crowd. He spoke convincingly when he moved to Corinth after this and had a powerful ministry there both amongst the new church that was growing because Paul had planted that church and also amongst the Jews. He, saw, he, saw, he had such a gathering and a following that Paul would later write to the church trying to argue this point. Listen to what, he, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4 and following. He's correcting the church in Corinth. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then, or who then, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made the growth. What we can notice there is that Apollos continues in his ministry in a dynamic way, a gifted way. He's able to build his own following enough that some would say, I, I prefer Apollos. We had Paul for a while, but I prefer Apollos. Man, the way he teaches, the way he ministers. And Paul was correcting that. Hey, we're not about rivalry here. In fact, get your eyes on Jesus. We're merely servants. But we know in this character of Apollos that he is a, a dynamic crowd attractor, bold, unafraid to preach publicly, so fervent in the Spirit to be sure. But notice this. I think this is one of the, one of the gems to be mined out of this passage. The, the pearl that is worth the dive. What sets Apollos apart from so many other bold, dynamic, convincing, crowd-drawing preachers is his humility. In fact, I would say being fervent in the Spirit. That phrase cannot be used to describe someone who lacks humility. Fervent in their own spirit, to be sure, which has been true of many men and women. But fervent in the Holy Spirit, by definition, means it's not about us, but another who's working through us. 
And you say, well, maybe that's a, isn't that a stretch? Isn't that a leap? I don't think so. Apollos, this young, dynamic, educated, attractive man, in many ways in the same plane, at the same plane as Paul, he was willing to learn from this older Italian couple. And it's true, we don't, we don't know how old this, this couple is. We can joke about it because Priscilla's name actually means ancient. But more than likely, this couple was seasoned in ministry and, and well ahead in life of Apollos. Meanwhile, Apollos was named after a Greek god. And so add to that his boldness and his dynamic personality and his gifts. He was educated more formally than Priscilla and Aquila would have been. They didn't have any special degrees or initials before or after their name. And maybe Apollos did. They were the equivalent of cobblers. Right? They're leather workers. They're, they're essentially blue-collar. They knew the Scriptures, but probably not any better than Apollos. So by all of those accounts, Apollos did not need to listen to this couple. And I'd say a prideful man wouldn't have. Who are you to teach me? I look at your ministry, look at mine. Look, who are you attracting? Look at me. And Apollos does none of that. He goes, he hears, he receives. He actually is willing to learn, to know that there's more that he doesn't yet know, especially about Jesus, and he's hungry and thirsty for it. And what a powerful model that is. So vital for any leader. Author and pastor Aubrey Malfers kind of famously has said, if, if you're done learning, you're done leading. Our world may call it a growth mindset, but the Bible shows it to be fervency in the Spirit. Humility and perspective working together. That there's always more to learn. We've never arrived. If you need to pray, and this is, this is a good prayer, Lord, teach me humility. He will. But you're not ready to lead others. Until you learn a measure, a deeper measure of Christ's humility, recognizing that all we have and all I am is from God and God alone, and the only hope I have is through Christ and the power of the Spirit. Until that's been learned, and I can't say there's one way to learn that, but it has to come somehow through the end of ourself, a a full dying to self. Until that happens, you're not ready to lead others. Many do. The better prayer would be, God, keep me humble. Keep me humble. Add to my humility, Lord, boldness. Please give me this boldness. There's nothing wrong with boldness and courage and being dynamic or eloquent. Being able to teach or attract. There's nothing wrong with those things. But Lord, may those things be added to the humility You've taught me. Paul would model this throughout his life as bold as he was and sometimes direct and confrontational as he could be. When he, when he speaks to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, not quite there yet, he'll, he'll say, I've admonished you. Remember this. I admonished you for, for years with tears. Remember you saw my heart. 
you see me, both in speaking the truth in love, in grace, in humility. When he wrote back to the Philippian church, it may not be the first letter he wrote to the church in Philippi, but it's the one we have in the Bible. He was in prison. So this is towards the end of his life. And here's what he said, Philippians 3, verse 12 and following. As he's exhorting them to really to grow in the Lord, to grow and to be more uh, holy and faithful. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. It's almost like he catches himself. As if I've arrived is what he's saying. I'm not perfect, but I press on. I press on to make even these things my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's so worthy of pursuing is what he's saying. Brothers, I do not consider that I have yet made it my own. I have not arrived. I have not achieved it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, because you're immature. You're immature. You need to grow so much. He says, Those who are mature need to grow so much. Those who are mature actually have this mindset. That man, I've barely come anywhere and God has taken me so far. But isn't that kind of old cliche true that the more you you know, the more you know you don't know. Um, Sorry for you 15, 16 year olds in the room. Uh, This is not the time of life when you know everything. We all think we do though, don't we? Even sadder is the one who never grows past that. God, keep us humble. Keep us growing that at the end of our life we could speak like this, like Paul. After all that he had done and accomplished, as close as he walked to Jesus, as most of us would say, if I could be anything like Paul, and Paul is saying, I've got so far to go. Keep on striving. Keep on going. The time is short. It's such, it's such zealous humility. It's fervency in spirit. We see it in Paul. We see it in Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, we see it in Apollos. Maybe expressed in slightly different ways, but that same heart that is hungering and thirsting after the Lord and striving for Him. Now remember that fervency, boiling, boldness, and humility... They must come together. Really, one without the other is of very little use. They must come together. I'd say one without the other makes us lukewarm. Not boiling, but lukewarm. Jesus would say to His church, this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, to the church at Laodicea, so because you are lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of My mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yikes. But if we end there, we miss the gospel. Those are Jesus' words, those are hard words, a hard rebuke. We sometimes need hard words to make our hearts soft. But if we end here, it kind of sounds more like, get your act together news. Wake up, 
news. Work harder news. Be more fervent. Give more to missionaries. Do more religious activity. Read and study your Bible more. That's kind of all the places we go if we end there. And that's not where Jesus ended. If we need the reminder or the rebuke that we are lukewarm, that we are, we are not boiling in the Spirit or fervent in our spirit, we are falling short, not, of, not falling short of the model set before us by these men and women, though it's a good model, but falling short, falling short of the call that Paul talked about, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that we are living lukewarm. There's very little in our life that's spiritually boiling. If we need that reminder, and if we have received that, then we also need to hear the rest of His words. We need to hear the Gospel. Those whom I love, Jesus goes on, I reprove and I discipline. The reason he speaks that way is because he loves us and he will not leave us in a place of lukewarmness. Be zealous and repent. Be fervent and repent, or fervent in your repentance. Behold, kind of the famous verse that we often pull right out of context. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Maybe we should do all those things I mentioned. Give more generously. Read and study our Bible more. Serve others. Have our eyes open. Be more fervent. Okay, maybe we should do all of those things, but not if the motivation is to please the Lord and earn His favor and to avoid hell. Let's say that a different way. Not if the motivation is to simply fill a role, a mold. Or to say, well, this is what God demands, then I, then I will be that. I can be that. To live this way, then I, I know that I'm good. I'm safe from the dangers of hell because I won't, I won't be spit out of, out of God's mouth. The reason that Paul and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla were fervent in the Spirit is because they'd met Jesus and been amazed by Him. They were continuing to see Jesus at work and be amazed by Him. That's what was motivating them toward their fervency, toward their work. And that must be what motivates us. When Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Don't flip those things around. Not that our obedience can't help us grow to love Him, but that's not why we serve and work. We strive like Paul does, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the upward call of God. He is so worthy of all, all that we are and all that we have. And we are not content where we are. We are always striving and growing. Lord, help us not be lukewarm. He stands at the door and knocks. That, that incredible picture. The King of Heaven needs no invitation. Kind of the famous, the famous picture that I know I had hanging in my house, I wonder if you did, of, of Jesus, um, of white guy, long hair Jesus. So take, take that with a grain of salt, but the picture of him knocking at this door that has vines over it and no doorknob. That door looks like it hasn't been opened in a long time and that there's no, there's no way to open it from the outside is kind of the 
author's illustration. The King of Heaven does not need an invitation into our life. And yet He is often asking for one. He is often positioning Himself waiting for us to invite Him in. A good but scary prayer is, Lord, break down that door. I don't even know if I can open it or will open it. But where we are able to open the door to our heart, He comes in to fellowship with us. And by the way, there's probably some house cleaning that He needs to do first that we need to invite Him to do. Maybe we're not opening that door because the house isn't clean. You have this friend or this neighbor who says you invite over often and they say, I'll invite you, but my house is not, not prepared and not equipped and not ready for you to come. Maybe that's the reason we don't open the door. What have we so invited into our home, our heart? Maybe the heart is full. It's full or it's cluttered and there's no room and we're not prepared. We're not ready to clean. And maybe, maybe something slightly different. We, there's so much noise that we've invited or allowed into our life that we can't even hear the knock at the door. And meanwhile, Jesus is there knocking and ready. And if we think that our house is ever going to be ever able to be fully kept and prepared for Jesus, we'll never open that door. And so Jesus, come in and help me clean house. That we can fellowship and dine at this table. You have the prominent seat. Lord, thank You. And as we respond today, as we come as we come to this table, this is, this is an invitation for a reason. I've often been asked, why, why don't you pass the communion elements? There's a, a few reasons for it. But the primary, one of the primary, is for in the invitation response. That we're moved by Jesus, we move by Jesus. I know it's subtle and it's small. But He doesn't enforce Himself on us. He's inviting us to partake. He's invited us to the table and He says, take and eat and do this in remembrance. We're so prone to forget. And so as we come to the table with that picture in mind that He stands at the door and knocks, that His table is set for us, we are inviting Him in by His by His body and His blood, Lord, dwell in me. Have all of me. You're the source of life. You're the only one that satisfies. Come into me and boil up my spirit within me that I might be boiling in the Holy Spirit for the work that You've called me to. And all of those things in a little cracker and a little cup of juice, we've got to do the work to take it to a deeper spiritual level. He stands at the door and knocks when we're going to be probably gathering around various kinds of tables this week that are spread with an abundance, let's take this meal throughout our week and be thankful for Him first. That meal will fill and then leave us empty. Ultimately, the meal that Jesus offers to us, the bread of life, the living water that we will never thirst again, He and He alone can make those promises for us. And so we receive again from Him today. Thank you, Jesus. I'll invite the team to come up. Lead us in response. You've got some songs for us that we can take time to meditate on. Dwell in this place. When you are ready, come to the table. He wants to dwell with us and to fill us.
and to be the only source of life for us. So thank You, Jesus. In this season of thanksgiving, there's nothing we are more thankful for than You. Your grace, Your mercy, Your love, Your pursuit, Your power in us and purpose for us. Fill us, Lord. Make us fervent in the Holy Spirit. We do not want to remain lukewarm. Boil us, Lord. Time is too short. Because of what You've done in us and what You're doing through us, we want to do anything for You. Be honored and glorified here in this place at this time. Speak and work in our hearts. And send us into the fields, Lord. The fields of neighbors and friends' homes, family, work, schools, and neighborhoods, Lord. That we might be Your salt and light. That we might too extend an invitation to know You more fully, to see You more clearly, and hopefully love You completely as You love. Overwhelm us, I pray, with a sense of Your, Your presence and Your grace that we might be a thankful people. That what comes out of our lips regardless of our circumstance, is true worship in thanksgiving. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.